wonderful to hear, bringing hope and cheer. It's the lovely name of Jesus, evermore the same. What a lovely name. What a lovely name, this name of Jesus, reaching higher far. Sweeter than the songs they sing in heaven. Let the world proclaim. What a lovely name. His name, there's wondrous power. Power to redeem. Making sinners clean. By his power he cleansed the leper, opened blinded eyes, caused the dead to rise. He'll return in clouds of glory, saints of every race shall behold his face. Jesus, reaching higher far, reaching higher far than the brightest star. Sweeter than the songs they sing in heaven. Let the world proclaim, what a lovely name. Let the world proclaim, what a lovely name. I think I was showing my age there trying to see that paper. <laughs> yeah, all right. Take your Bible, turn over the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14, we'll get started in five minutes after everyone's gotten there. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 14, good to have you with us today. Looks like the sun's shining out there. I have a window to the outside. I can see here a little bit. We put a tree in front of the door because we noted that sometimes the uh, cars passing by would flash stuff in. And we noticed that some of the folks over here on this side were just looking out the window, staring aimlessly. <clears throat> Not really, but nonetheless, well, maybe in some cases, I don't know. But Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 and read through verse 23. <clears throat> The Bible says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and I will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they spoil it, so that it be desolate, 
that no man may pass through because of the beast. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters. They only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, Sword, go through the land so that I cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more then, excuse me, how much more when I send my four sword judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the noise and beasts, and the pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and ye shall see their way and their doings. Ye shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you when ye see their ways and their doings. Ye shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. In our passage today, we are reading about a nation who has neglected the Lord in so many ways. God has warned this people, Judah, over and over and over again to repent of their ways and to turn back to Him. To set aside their idolatry and to turn their face back to God. And yet, they had only become more cold and more distant week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. It seemed that although prophet after prophet was sent, although warning after warning was given, the people of God continued to grow colder, harder, and more indifferent to God than ever. It seemed at this point that the whole culture, the country, was corrupt and consumed with sin now. Even though God had run very short on patience. Although God would ultimately, according to the passage, bring great pestilence and the sword and famine and these four sword judgments upon this particular nation, there would still be a remnant, the Bible says, that would be left behind. There would still be a people who would remain faithful to God in spite of it all. In the midst of the evil, in the midst of the corruption, in the midst of the falling away and the idolatry, there would still be a group of faithful believers. And today in our passage, we want to glean from it. And we want to consider three points and then note three principles that I believe apply to each and every one of us. And so let's take a few moments. We'll have a word of prayer. And with this backdrop in this setting, see what we can't learn for our day and our time and for us as a people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the privilege that we have to gather here. It is our great honor to be your children. It's our great pleasure to be received of you, 
as part of your family. Lord, there may be those who have yet to trust and receive you as Savior and Lord. Father, if that is the case, may they do so even before they leave this place. And Father, for our hearts that know you as Savior and Lord, may we be stirred to remain faithful in the midst of a corrupt and perverse generation. May we not compromise. May we not allow ourselves to be corrupted. But may we stand faithful. Lord, help us, Lord, we pray. And we'll give you the glory for it. Now fill me with your spirit and be with these that are listening. May we not be distracted, but may we truly be focused on you and your word now, these next moments. I need you, and I pray for your leadership and ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, as we consider these points in the passage, I want to note, one, the sin of the people. First of all, we see the prophets. Now again, in our day and age, we would consider prophets to be like us as pastors, uh, preachers, if you will. We would consider that as a preacher, or a speaker here in the church of God. These were prophets. They were religious leaders. The Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 13, verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, Woe unto the foolish prophets, the foolish prophets, that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Now, you have to understand, and you probably already do, but prophets foretold or foreseen things. They, they, they saw things. In the, in the Old Testament, they were often referred to even as seers. They saw the future. They could see what was ahead. They, they received from God and then shared with the people. And in this particular case, these prophets, these seers, these men of God, supposedly, the Bible tells us that they were foolish prophets. Why? Why were they foolish? Simply because they followed their own spirit. Simply because they had seen nothing. And so what they were they doing? They were sharing advice. They were giving interpretation. They were telling people what God was saying. And in reality, they had received nothing from God. Nothing at all. In Ezekiel 13, verse 10, just a few verses down, it says, because even because they have seduced my people, saying, peace. And there was no peace. And one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. He says, notice he says, they seduced my people. They seduced my people. These are foolish prophets. They are false prophets. They are following their own spirit. They are seeing nothing and they are seducing God's people. Ezekiel chapter 13 goes on to tell us in verse 22 through 23, because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad. The heart of the righteous would be that remnant that was true to God in spite of the corruption of the people. Because of the lies, or with lies, ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. Saying, you know what? I'm telling you that unless you repent of your sin, unless you turn from your evil, I'm going to bring great pestilence of the sword, famine, and my four-sword judgment upon you as a people, and a number of you are going to die, as a fact, many, many multitudes will perish, and yet you promise life, you promise peace, you promise prosperity, when in reality there's only death that awaits them. That's what the foolish prophet was sharing. Therefore, verse 23 of chapter 13, 
ye shall see no more vanity, nor divine divinations. For I will deliver my people out of your hand. Notice whose hand he's delivering them out of. Not the enemies, at least physical enemy, but the spiritual enemy. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Boy, the prophets, the prophets, they were a mess. We got any of those today? Of course we do. They're always false prophets. Every generation. There are always those who speak of their own instead of him and his word. These false prophets discourage the faithful while deceiving the faithless. Isn't that something? We see the prophets considering the sin of the people, though we note the princes as well. We could talk of these maybe as leaders in their community. They could possibly be the congressmen, if you will, the senators, the, the representatives, their local governments, the princes. The Bible tells us, of course, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 this time, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, again, Ezekiel is being approached, These men have set up their idols in their heart. And put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of all of at, excuse me, should I be inquired of at all by them? God's saying, should I even listen to what they, should I even waste my time? Why? Why would God say that? Because they were idolaters, first of all. They were idolaters. Again, he says simply that these They have set up their idols in their heart. They've established those idols. They've raised up those idols in their heart. They're idolaters. They were irresponsible. They had consulted with Ezekiel. Not because they truly wanted to hear from him. Not because they wanted to glean from his insights. Not because they really believed he had something to offer them. But they were just simply curious. They placed no more stock in his prophecies than they did any of the other prophets. They didn't say, oh boy, we have the privilege and the opportunity to sit before Ezekiel, to question him, to get his insights, his understanding. No, they they really had no desire whatsoever to do so. They'd already raised up idols in their heart. Uh, According to the passage, they'd already put stumbling blocks of, of sin in their life to the point where they really had no desire to even learn, hear, or understand the truth. Not only that, they were just downright insincere. You know that God's not interested in our lip service? He's concerned with our heart. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, The people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These particular men, these princes, and even the prophets, boy, they put on a good show. Boy, they walked around as though they really had the interest of the people at heart, that they really wanted what God had for them. But no, that wasn't the case at all. They were extremely insincere. Boy, they honored God with their lips, but they would not honor God with their heart. They had established and set up idols in their heart, even the Bible says. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We note the prophets, the princes, but finally the people themselves. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 5 says, Son of man, 
Thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Isn't that something? A rebellious house. So as we look at the people in general, we note that God says they are a rebellious heart, a rebellious house, a rebellious attitude. Isn't that something? I wonder if God looked down today in the churches of America even, not even the world. We understand that the world is way off base. But I wonder if he looked in our homes, our, our church houses, I wonder what heart he would find. I wonder. The Bible talks about when the Lord returns, will he find faith? But I wonder if he'll find righteousness or if he'll find rebellion. We just did our train of a child workshop and one of the keys and uh, early on is to, to break the will of the child. Not to bend, not to break the spirit, not to wreck and ruin the kid, but to truly break the will so that their will is submitted to your will. And you know what the fact is today is that I'm concerned that possibly, although we understand that to be a need in a child's life to a parent, a father, a mother, we fail to remember that that is exactly what you and I as children of God need to do in our life. Our will must be broken and submitted and submissive to His will. Otherwise, it's a rebellious spirit. And that's exactly what the people of God in Ezekiel's day had, was a heart of rebellion toward God. They have eyes to see, but they don't see. They have ears to hear, but they do not hear, the Bible says. You know, we live in the information age. We live in a day when we can see and hear more than any other, probably any other culture ever in the history of at least recent history. I got to believe that back before the flood, they had much more information, knowledge, and understanding than we did. Because that, in those days, we're closer to creation, and we know that the creation is only spiraling downward, not evolving upward. Someone says, I don't get that. Well, I'm telling you now, Adam was the best God ever made. At that point, he was physically everything you can imagine right on target. I mean, the next best thing showed up in 1963. <laughs> Stands before you today. <laughs> but we have access to so much today. We have so much information at our disposal. But the reality is, is that we are as blind as bats to, to spiritual matters. We can't hear what God would have us in many cases. Ezekiel 14, 5 says, That I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. You like? You see, I got, I got it going, right? I gleaned from Brother Hamblin. Estranged. Separated from God. Why? Because of their idols. Their idols. We don't have any idols today in America, do we? And I say to his believers, oh, how careful we must be. The people of God. So we see the sin of the people, the prophets, the princes, the people themselves. Number two, the strategy of the punishment. What, what, what's going on here? God's going to punish his people. He's going to chasten his people. But what's the strategy behind the punishment? Well, he says in Ezekiel 14, 
Verse 22 and 23, you're welcome to turn there. We're right there in the passage anyway. He says, Yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. First of all, we see the remnant is identified in his wrath. God's going to pour out his wrath, but before he does that, he identifies a remnant. And he says there's going to be a remnant. After all the smoke clears, God's people will be preserved through the judgment. After everything is said and done, there'll still be a remnant of people, a group of believers that will still say, bless God. That will still say, praise God. That are faithful to the Lord. A remnant will remain. But we go on to find that not only will the remnant be identified in His wrath, but God's people are purified in His wrath. He says, They shall come forth unto you, they being the remnant, coming forth unto the wicked, and ye shall see their way and their doings. So the nation will have been purged of the evil, and those that are remaining are going to embrace their God as their own. Embrace the God of Israel as their own. See, with sin rooted out, their ways and their doings will ultimately please God. And they'll resemble God's people again, as God always intended. It's interesting that in every generation, God expects His people to be peculiar and different. In Second in 1 Peter 2.9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So the remnant is identified in His wrath. There's going to be no doubt who the faithful are. But then also those people are going to be purified in His wrath. And so will the nation. But then ultimately we note in that passage that God is justified in His wrath. He goes on to say, And ye shall know that I have not done without cause all that I've done in it. Do you know God is always justified? Do you realize that? Even in His wrath, even in His chastening, He is justified. Why? Because He's righteous. He's holy. He's without sin. You know that whatever God does, it's always right. You may not agree with God and you may not feel that it's okay. You may feel that He's been a little bit... um, inconsiderate of your feelings, but the reality is is that God is always right and God is always good. And the fact is, is that God is justified in whatever He brings into our lives. Because the reality is, we don't deserve anything but a devil's hell. God has begged these people, pleaded with these people, implored these people to turn from their sin and their idolatry back to Him. He sent prophet after prophet. He'd give them opportunity after opportunity to turn to him, but they would not. Therefore, Ezekiel 14, 6 says, Say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. In Deuteronomy 8, 20, we read, As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish. God had made it very clear to the people of God as they entered into that promised land that if they would turn to the idols of the people of the land, if they would depart from Him and His goodness, His grace, His mercy, His love, His law, then they would experience exactly what the nations have experienced as a result of their disobedience. And now we find it coming to fruition here in Ezekiel. 
Not only did they reject the voice of God, but they reveled in their sin. I mean, they just took pleasure in their sin. They weren't a bit convicted about their sin. They weren't a bit ashamed even because of their sin. We read a passage in the book of Jeremiah chapter 8 that really expresses this truth. Verse 12, it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Good question. Nay. By the way, if you're having a hard time with the King James Bible, nay means no. Just thought I would help define it. It's not that hard, is it? You liked that, didn't you, brother? Okay, I thought you did. Okay, good. Notice it says here, They were not at all ashamed. This is a great... Look at the next passage. Neither could they blush. I mean, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they weren't. They weren't in the least bit. A least bit ashamed. They they couldn't even blush. They couldn't even turn red. Then you could catch them red-handed. You could see them in the very act. You could recognize their sin as blatant as it could possibly be, but were they ashamed when you caught them with a beer in their hand? Were they ashamed when you caught them committing adultery? Were you ashamed when you caught them turning their back and bowing to idols? No, nobody's ashamed. Hey, that's my life. I do what I want. I'm not hurting anybody else. Listen, don't judge me. That's what's going on there. It might be fine for you, but it doesn't mean I have to obey God. That's your business. I have my own God. Me and him have an arrangement. You ever hear anybody say stuff like that? That's amazing, isn't it? But the Bible says, well, that's your interpretation. Okay. I'm just saying, I I don't get it. I don't understand it 100%. But what I do know is, is that that's the state of the people back in Ezekiel's day. And I think we may see a remnant of that today. But you know what? God still desires fellowship with His people. And you know, His motives are pure. And you know, He is justified in even His wrath. In Ezekiel 14, 11, He says, Check my motives, folks, that the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions but that they may be my people and I may be their God. Okay, let's, let's just make it simple. Say a child, God forbid this is true in anybody's life here, but say you, you would have a child that was involved in drugs and alcohol and in that scene of immorality and their life is spiraling downhill. They want nothing to do with God. They turn their back on Him. They worship everyone and anything other than God. And you come to them and say, listen, I am going to lock you up in a facility that is going to deny you every single thing that you love in life. Why would you do that to me? Listen, it's my life. I, have, I don't see a problem with it. You worry about yourself and leave me alone. And you have the, say you had the ability to. You had the opportunity and you had the means to do it. And you lock them up. You take them away from it. You put them in a state in which only they can uh, get what's needed and necessary in their life to turn them from that sin and that lifestyle. 
and to clean them up and get the drugs out of their system and get the alcohol out of their system and get their mind cleared up long enough to think straight for a minute. Would you be a bad person even though they thought you were the most vile, wretched, self-imposing person on earth for doing it? No, you would still be right and justified in what you were doing because you love them and you want what's best for them even though they can't possibly see how it's hurting their life. And that's exactly what God does when we're in sin. God says, I'm going to have to do something to bring you out of that mess because I love you more than you love yourself right now even. I understand that you can't see straight enough to recognize that it's destroying you, that sin is, and that idolatry is. And so I'm going to do something to get your attention and bring you back to me where you can truly be blessed. And that's exactly what he did with the people of God here in Ezekiel's day. He is justified in his wrath. And finally, we see the sign of the prophets, or patriarchs, excuse me, the sign of the patriarchs. Now, again, in our passage, we've noted three things. Now, we've seen the sin of the people, the strategy of the punishment, but now note the sign of the patriarchs. We see Noah. We're introduced to him in the, in the passage. God speaks of these three men, Noah, Daniel, Job. <laughs> it's interesting about Noah. In Genesis 6, uh, we learn about him. Of course, we're told if, if Noah, if Daniel, if Job were in this day and in this time in which I'm going to pour out my wrath upon this people, they themselves would be saved. Nobody else may be around them, but they themselves would be because of their righteousness, because of their actions, because of their deeds, because of their devotion to me. I, we think of Noah in Genesis 6, 8, and 9, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And that's something. Noah walked with God. Then Daniel, in Daniel 1.8, we notice the Bible says, But Daniel purposed in his heart, and he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel, he's a man that purposed in his heart. Job, the Bible says in Job 1.1, he goes on to say, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Isn't that something about these three men? One, Noah, he walked with God. Two, Daniel, he purposed in his heart. And three, Job, he feared God. Now let me tell you something. That's the characteristic those, I should say, are the characteristics of a man or a woman who will go through the judgment of God. And we're not talking about eternal judgment at this point. We're talking about the wrath of God on a culture, a society. We're talking about God trying to win back what he has lost in a sense. I mean, God allowing horrible times to come into the lives of his own people for the sake of drawing them back to him. The kind of man, the kind of woman that God will bless in the midst of that mess is a man or a woman who walks with him. A man or a woman who has purposed his or her heart that they will not defile themselves. A man or a woman who fear God and eschew evil. The patriarchs are a sign of that remnant. Believing remnant, faithful remnant. So what are some principles we can learn then? Number one, no matter how wicked our culture or society becomes, 
you can live for the Lord. That's it. You know, we live in a generation in a day where, if we're not careful, we kind of buy into the idea that, well, you know what, temptation's just too great. It's never been as bad as it's been in our culture, our society ever. I mean, this is the worst generation that's ever existed. And you know what, it's just impossible to expect young people or adults alike to live for God, to be separated and consecrated and identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's the mentality that we live in. Well, you know what? Okay, every believer is going to have their difficulties. Every believer is going to surrender themselves to the world somehow, some way. Every believer is going to have an idol. Every believer is going to have to, because you got to, you just, that's how you have to live today. You just can't get around it. It's just the culture. It's the world. It's the society we live in, preacher. You can't really expect me. You can't expect my family to really be separated unto God. You can't really expect to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Not in this generation. It's different than it used to be. Oh, maybe 40, 50 years ago. That's one thing. But now everybody's corrupt. Everybody's going haywire. You just try to get through it the best you can. Well, I'm glad that Noah didn't just try to get through it the best he could. I'm glad Daniel didn't just coast through it and say, well, you know what? We just got separated from our family. Probably parents and siblings and others were murdered and killed as they were drug away to Babylon. I'm glad he didn't just say, fellas, listen, there's no reason to put up a fight. There's no reason to live for Jesus in this culture. We're doomed. We're doomed. We're doomed. Glad he didn't do that. I'm glad Job, in the midst of his problems and his circumstances, didn't say, well, you know what? If God's angry, if God's that kind of person, if God's so vindictive, if God just doesn't care about me, then guess what? I don't care about him. No, no matter how wicked or how vile or how wretched our culture or society becomes, I want you to know biblically and scripturally, the Bible states and proves that you and I can live for the Lord. We don't have to succumb to the temptation. We don't have to yield to the, to the prospect of sin. We don't have to adopt the mentality, the ideology of idolatry. This culture in which they lived in Ezekiel's day was ravaged with idolatry. There was a total disregard for God, a total disregard for morality and truth. And yet these men would have stood like they stood in their generation. They would have stood in that generation. And may I say the Bible says there was a remnant that was still standing in that day. And may I say whether you live back in Job's day, Noah's day, or possibly Daniel's day, or even back in Ezekiel's day, I want you to know you could stand in the midst of that mess. And you know what? You can stand today. And so can I. Number two, we learned that no matter how wicked our culture or society becomes, you can escape judgment. It's interesting that Noah, Daniel, and Job were promised deliverance in the midst of a God-judged nation. Well, they, their lives would have been spared. They would have made it through. They'd have gotten to the end. Sword, famine, wild beast, pestilence were sent from, uh, upon Judah, and yet the remnant remained in the land of God. They remained faithful to the Lord, and God was with them. The hand of God was on them. You may not be able to deliver everybody you'd like to deliver. You may not be able to reach every sinner that's lost in their sin. You may not be able to reclaim every believer that slipped off into their own lifestyle following after idols. You may not be able to do that. We know that even Daniel, Job, 
Noah would have struggled in Ezekiel's day to do that. Just themselves would have been saved in the midst of that judgment. But you don't stop trying. You keep living for God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know, you don't give up on people. But no matter how wicked the culture becomes, no matter how vile and wretched your family becomes, no matter how many turn their back on God and away from you, listen, you can stand and you can escape the coming judgment. You know that that eastern sky is going to split wide open and we're going to hear a trumpet and we're going to be taken out. You realize that? And you're going to escape the judgment. You won't have to spend one second in that tribulation period. Not one. I don't care what anybody says. Anybody that doesn't believe that hasn't read their Bible through. These men prove it, first of all. Take, as we said, Enoch last Wednesday. Just look at it. Consider it. You won't spend a moment. You stay faithful. Don't you quit on God. Don't you quit on God. I hope the Lord comes back before I have to go to the grave. Don't you hope you miss that event? I do. I don't want, I don't want to have to die. I, I, I was dead when I was born, spiritually. And now I was made alive. I don't want to ever have to die again. Finally, number three, we learned this principle. No matter how wicked our culture or society becomes, you can experience the blessing of God. Daniel, Noah, Job, all of them, they found mercy and blessing in the midst of overwhelming odds. You know what? So can you. Hey, we live in a very uh, difficult age, do we not? I mean, it seems that over the last 10, 15 years, it just, you know, the culture and the society and Satan has just ramped up his efforts to, to speed men and women away from God. I mean, it seems like we are on literally a crash course concerning spiritual matters. I mean, we see churches turning their back on God. We see churches reneging on their commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, where once there were altars, there's no altars. Where once there was sound biblical scriptural music, it's been changed to worldly, fleshly. We see where there's been, we've lost a standard of appearance in our pulpits and in our pews and where the people of God have no desire whatsoever to stand out in our culture. They want to look like the world. They want to talk like the world. We want to act like the world. We want to live like the world. That is a reality today in most cases. May I say today that God still wants a remnant to remain faithful in these last days. And may I say that his hand of blessing will it be upon a man or a woman, upon a couple, upon a home, upon a church, upon a nation whose God is the Lord. Ezekiel 9, 4 says, And as the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. You mark them. There are people that are broken hearted because of the sin of their nation. 
There are those that are brokenhearted because of the sin of their family. Their people. You mark them. Because I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to bless them in spite of it all. We can't quit. We can't give up. The question is, will you stand? Or will you yield to the world and its influence? Will you allow idolatry to creep into your life, into your marriage, into your home, and ultimately into your church? God help us to remember that no matter how wicked, no matter how vile our culture and our society become, we can live for God. We can escape the judgment and we can experience the blessings of God. God got tired of the idolatry. He grew intolerant of the rebellion. He couldn't deal with it anymore. And you know, unlike us, his motivation was not simply rejection. It wasn't just that they weren't obeying him. See, you know, as parents, sometimes our kids don't listen to us and we're like, oh, you're going to listen to me. How dare you insult me that way? How dare you disobey me? And that's really our pride. The reality is, is that if we're going to correct or discipline at that point, it ought to be out of a heart of, you don't have a clue where you're headed right now. You don't even, you can't even fathom where your rebellion and your disobedience is going to take you. You don't know this, but you need my leadership and my guidance. You don't realize this, but without me, you're really headed down a road to destruction, and I want to help you. I feel sorry for you right now. That's how God saw it. God wasn't just angry in that regard. It wasn't just like vindictive with God. He genuinely cared. He had compassion and he considered the people of God. What he did, he was justified in because it was truly in the best interest of the people. Do you realize that if he would not have judged the sin and the wickedness and the idolatry, there was a good chance that even the faithful would have ultimately fell? Do you realize that? Even the most faithful wife can only be faithful so long. Listen to me now. Even the most faithful man can only be faithful so long and take so much. Listen, a child that's been raised in the church, a young man or a woman that wants to live for God can be provoked to wrath. Listen, don't, don't you take your Christian wife for granted. Don't you take your faithful husband for granted. Don't you just say in your heart, well, they're a Christian and therefore they're going to have to put up with it. They're going to have to deal with it. Let me tell you something. God said enough's enough because if I don't deal with that sin, if I don't face that idolatry, if I don't address this issue, even the very faithful may turn. God's so compassionate and loving and so considerate of his people. No matter how dark our culture and society becomes, you and I can choose to serve the Lord. We can live for Him. We can escape the wrath. We can experience His many blessings. But you have to come to Him if you're lost today. He's already opened His arms. He's already invited you to come to Him. It's just a matter of you saying, Lord, I need you. 
Jesus, you died on that old cross 2,000 years ago. As much as I'd like to believe I can live a good enough life, my good will outweigh the bad, I can somehow be benevolent in my expressions and in my giving. The fact is, Lord, no matter how much I could ever do, it would never pay for my sin. Only you and your shed blood can do that, and I need you today to forgive me, to save me, and to take me to heaven one day. And if you're saved today, you're a child of God, will you remain faithful? In the midst of this perverse and wicked generation which we live, and it is, will you choose to stand for the Lord? To reject idolatry, to reject sin, and to take on the responsibility of a Christ-like spirit, attitude, and actions. Father, help us today. We need you. Lord, we love you for all you've done for us.